Welcome back to Tradman, everybody. Uh, this is going to be a great episode, a very important episode, um, one that I've wanted to, to do for a while, and we have a very uh, distinguished guest with us. Uh, joining us today is Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. Uh, he is a Thomistic theologian, liturgical scholar, and choral composer. He taught at the International Theological Institute in Austria before helping establish Wyoming Catholic College, where he was a professor of Almost every subject I think they taught there. Um, he's a prolific writer and lecturer and contributes regularly to a wide ride array of websites and publications. Uh, one of his most recent works, which we're here to talk about today, is True Obedience in the Church, A Guide to Discernment in Challenging Times. Dr. Kwasniewski, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you so much for having the me Catholic on. Church, the Catholic Church does not care who I think is a defender of the faith, but if they were to allow me, if they were to, allow me to, do, to bestow that title upon people, uh, you would be one of the very first people knighted in my new order of defenders of the faith, sir, and I really appreciate the work that you <laughs> what, do. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That's, that's, that's quite a compliment. Just as long as I don't end up doing with the title Defensor Fidei, what Henry VIII did <laughs> yes. with Yeah, I'm going to talk to you right after the knighting ceremony. I'm going to be like, you better, you know, watch P's and Q's there, buddy. Uh, <laughs> um, but before we begin, as always, we want to invoke the divine blessing. We say a quick prayer to the Holy Ghost so that our, um, our, our, we have a, uh, an edifying discussion on a very, very important topic uh, this afternoon. So if you're listening, please join along with us. In omni patris et fili et spiritus sancti. Amen. Veni sancti spiritus, repletor accorda fidelium, et tui amoris in eis ignim accende. Imite spiritum tuum et creabuntur. Et venevabis facem tere. Oremos. Deus quicorda fidelium, sancti spiritus, distrazione docuisti. Da nobis in iorum spiritu recta sapere, et de eos semper consolazione gadere, per Christum dominum nostrum. Amen. In omni patris et fili et spiritus sancti. Amen. And the only reason I don't take my hat off when I pray on the show is to get my headphones off, and then the hat would just be a, a, a ridiculous overture. And so um, the Holy Ghost, please uh, forgive me for that. But anyway, I want to dig right into it. Um, when I talk about the crisis in the church, particularly to non-Catholics, this is sort of the this is the this is my elevator speech of the crisis. It's, I'll get your take on it. Um, I I posit that the Catholic Church is not a religion. The Catholic Church is a society, okay? Catholicism is the religion of the Catholic Church. And so if you want to be saved, you have to be in the society. And to be in the society, you have to adopt the society's religion. And that is the way it has worked for about 2,000 years, up until July 16, 2021, in which the Pope wrote a letter which stated, basically, you can be a member of the society or you can practice the society's religion, but you cannot do both at the same time, leaving the rest of us to sort of wonder, okay, well, which is more important, that I practice the religion or that I'm a member of the group, but I can't be a member of the group if I practice the religion, but I can only be a member, and, and, and thus the, the situation goes on. Pretty accurate description of the current crisis, in your opinion, Dr. Kwasniewski? Yes, I mean, I, I, w I would, yes, I, I would say that, that um, one of the signs of our times is that there are many people who believe that they belong to the society of the church uh, without adhering to the religion. And, and that's, that's obviously a, a, a pivotal crisis because, because it's, you know, it's, it's like saying, you know, we get to have our cake and, and eat it too. I mean, you know, you, you actually can't, you have to be a Catholic uh, fully with your mind and heart, according to the, the 
the meaning that Catholic has always had. Um, but you know, now this big tent idea, which I think ecumenism and interreligious dialogue have fed into, we have this big tent idea where just about anybody can call himself Catholic. I mean, you see this with Chinos, right? Catholics in name only. Um, all of these pro-abortion politicians. Sure. I mean, there's not a single Catholic in the history of the church who would have said that Joseph Biden is a Catholic. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, he was baptized a Catholic. He ought to be a Catholic. God expects him to be one, but he's not. Right. Uh, and, and we could say that sadly about so many people. Well, and, and that leads us to, I have to tell you, your book came to me at the right moment. This is one of these these instances of, um, and I think back to our Lord in the Gospels where he says, which of you, if you needed bread, would, would do you believe your father would hand you a stone? This was bread for me. Um, when I first read Tradiciones Custodes, I knew what I was going to do, which is my initial reaction is going to sort of be, okay, don't freak out. This is probably not as bad as it seems. Don't get angry. We're going to deal with this and everything will be fine. Two months down the road, I was about 98% on my way to Constantinople, like 98.6%, not because I wanted to become Orthodox. And by the way, if there are any Orthodox listeners to us, uh, I, I, I do love and respect your traditions immensely, but we do pray for you to become Catholic. So just get used to that. Um, and then this, this small, it's not very thick. You guys can see it. Um, this book made its way into my hands and brought me... Dr. Kwasniewski, I can't even tell you how much peace uh, this brought back to my soul and kept me uh, within the mystical body and gave me sort of a, a, a blueprint that I'd like to walk through a little bit here today on how we as Catholics who struggle to be obedient to the church deal with it when modernist elements in the church demand that we help them destroy um, the mystical yes. body of Christ. So. Yeah. I, want, I wanted to ask you, first of all, because um, I feel like you have a very good sense of who these people really are, um, the strange way that modernists use obedience as a weapon, because mm -hmm. we, we try to be obedient Catholics. And, you know, the, the, and it's, it's always been very interesting to me that during the reign of the last two popes, um, well, I, I would say John Paul II, Benedict XVI, uh, obedience was odious to the modernist elements in the church. And, you know, and, and they lauded how free they were and how free you were not. And now all of the sudden, obedience is the most important thing. Boy, you, je you better not be disobedient. And now all of a sudden yes. they care. Um, yes. Do you believe that modernists use obedience as a, I mean, that's the sense that I get that to them, obedience yeah, yeah. is not a, something to help you grow in holiness or enrich your life in Christ. It's, it's a, it's a cudgel to be used it's on like your enemy. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, no. I mean, the, I mean, the hypocrisy is, is astonishing at this time that we're looking at, you know, in this time of the church, um, you know, precisely for the reason you said, where, where was all of this prompt obedience to the Pope when Sumorum Pontificum came out? Where was the prompt obedience when John Paul II published, uh, you know, Dominus Jesus or Veritati Splendor or many of these, many of the or other Ecclesia Dei, which, which, you know, yeah, or, you know, which had their, have their strong and weak points, but, but were reaffirming basic Catholic truths. Um, what about Humanae Vitae, right? I mean, that was, yeah. so you, you could just, you could give example after example after example where the liberal or progressive or modernist faction in the church, however you want to call it, 
um, you know, it's, it's a large range of, of, of types of people, uh, where, where they invoked conscience in a false sense of that word, conscience basically meaning I get to do whatever I want to do, regardless of what, right. <laughs> of what the church has always right. taught. Um, but, but now when the traditionalists or the conservatives are saying, wait a minute, you know, uh, we have rights in the church and tradition has rights in the church. Uh, oh, no, 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 Pope Francis must be obeyed. You know, I mean, so of course it's hypocritical. It's hypocritical. And we know that if we ever had a Pope like Benedict XVI again, who, and I think we will someday, who re revokes Traditionis Custodes and, and puts into place Sumorum Pontificum 2.0, uh, whatever that looks like, um, you know, that once again, all of the liberals are going to be, you know, tearing their garments, pulling out their hair, and invoking conscience again for, for not obeying any of it. So what, what's important to see is this. The traditionalist is not the same as the liberal when he invokes conscience. He's not the same. Uh, and, and the reason is that, that we actually have an argument based on Catholicism as a historical society with a historical content of religion and, and worship being a huge part of that, liturgy being a huge part of that. And so we actually have an objective, um, you might say, saint-approved basis mm. for objecting to certain things that Pope Francis is trying to do, or, or Archbishop Roach, or really any of these, the German synodal way, whatever oh, you want to Oh, put about. a pin in that, because um, we're going to talk about that, too, yeah. for sure. So we have plenty of objective reasons to, to, to say, actually, it's in the name of the truth that we are refusing to assent to Traditionis Custodes. It's because that document has objective, provable falsehoods in it that we are not accepting it. Because man, it's unworthy of, of man's rationality, and it's unworthy of a Catholic, a Christian, a baptized Christian, to swallow errors or falsehoods just because somebody in authority is trying to force you to do so, okay? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's actually a form of psychological abuse, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that, that I think is not to go on too much, but just one last point that I think is what's going on in the church right now, vis-a-vis -vis the traditionalists, right? If you look at their communities, they are made up of, they're dynamic. They're made up of lots of families, lots of families who are generously open to life, um, who are open and, and even encouraging of priestly religious vocations. We see these vocations. There are so many fruits of the Holy Spirit, obvious, undeniable fruits and yet those are the people who are being pummeled and with this weaponized obedience, right? That cannot be from God. That absolutely cannot be from absolutely. God. Well, I, I, you know, I wanted to touch on this while we're at it, because I had read a, a book a while back and, you know, basically, I can't remember the exact wording, but it had mentioned how when uh, Pope, Benedict, Pope Benedict XVI uh, was Pope, that he, you know, there were cardinals and bishops behind closed doors that were, they were basically saying, we don't need to obey him. Who, who cares? And then, of course, you fast forward now, those same bishops are talking about obedience. And we know in the, in the church today, the modernists and those in the hierarchy, why they're doing what they're doing, right? We know they have an agenda. But switching over to the laity, you know, you, you also have, uh, and your book speaks about this, but you have many in the pews next to us that have a misunderstanding of what true obedience is. So, yes. 
if we were to talk to to our our fellow lay Catholic, what would be you know it, that has a misunderstanding of this obedience? What would be the starting point in your opinion to start converting them over to what obedience is? It's not just blind allegiance to the hierarchy, but there is reason behind that. Mm-hmm. Sure. So the, I mean, the, the the basic place to begin is to say that obedience is the virtue by which we give assent to, or by which we subordinate ourselves to lawful or legitimate authority. So obedience is the virtue that makes me prompt and even joyful about uh, submitting to lawful authority. Okay. And, and so then you can just say, who's the lawful authority? And why are they a lawful authority? Well, there are many kinds of authority. God is the supreme authority. He is the source of all authority. Uh, and so right off the bat, if any, if any lower authority, whether civil or ecclesiastical, ever asks you to do something which is contrary to divine law or natural law, which also streams forth from God, uh, then, then you, you must not obey the lesser authority because you always have to obey the greater authority, not the lesser one. And I think everybody can understand that. That's the basis of civil disobedience. Um, that's you know that's that's the basis of self-defense, right? I mean, if, if somebody if somebody in authority tries to abuse you or attack you, you can repel them. You don't have to consent. You don't have to say, oh well, of course you you have the authority. No, you don't have the authority, right? I have integrity. I have my own rights. Um, so so that's the first point. The second point is is that the church as a whole. Uh, the, the church right now in 2022 isn't the whole of the church. The, it, it's the church after 2,000 years of teaching and, and worship. It's the church after 2,000 years of saints and all the advice that they give. It's, it's the church in heaven and in purgatory as well as the church on earth. So Catholics are actually embedded within this great mystical body, this great society that, that transcends the ages and transcends time and space. Um, and so, for example, the, the bishop or the cardinal or the pope, and any of us really, right now, need, we need to be obedient to the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, the Council of Chalcedon, the Council of Trent, the First Vatican Council, every council, uh, to the extent that it teaches dogmatically, so Vatican II doesn't really <laughs> have much to do with that uh, at this point. But but we're we're obedient to the objective givens of the the faith. That would include sacred scripture as well. Um, so if if anybody comes along, just to take a controversial example, if somebody comes along and and calls into question the indissolubility of marriage, which is divinely revealed, right? You absolutely not only don't you need to obey or accept that teaching and obey whatever comes from it or whatever you're told to do on the basis of it. But you must not. You, you must affirmative not duty. accept yeah. that. You yeah. um, and so that's where, you know, without getting too much into the weeds, because I'm sure we'll come around to this, but that's where, you know, when once you see that the liturgical tradition of the church is much more than just a, a kind of um, malleable disciplinary matter that the Pope can do whatever he wants with, the liturgy as the Pope's toy to use an expression of a, of a Dutch bishop. Uh, but, but when you see that the liturgy is actually a repository of doctrine, it's the, it's, the, it's the cumulative expression of the faith of the church, it's not possible for the church to contradict any of her traditional liturgical rites. I mean, maybe there could be room for um, 
for an additional right or a revised right, but not in such a way that it would contradict the rights that came before, and certainly not in such a way that you would have to abolish them and forbid them. Anybody who tried to do that would be showing that they're not actually obedient to the faith of the church of all times. Right. You know, and and I found it interesting in your book talking about the liturgy because this never crossed my mind that the traditional liturgy reinforces this obedience, this, uh, I guess if you want to say a holy obedience to God, it, it reinforces in the priest, and of course, then that then that transcends to the laity as well. I just thought that was a very interesting uh, teaching you had in the book that I've never considered before. Yes, no, it's, thank you for bringing that point up. It's actually amazing when you start looking more, when you look carefully at the traditional liturgy and you get to be familiar with it through your hand missile and, and just from experience, um, you see how it's, a, it's this, it's this uh, lifelong school of obedience, right? Especially for the clergy. They have to follow the rubrics. The rubrics are very detailed, very careful, very demanding. They're all important. They all have a meaning, even the tiniest placement of his hands has a meaning there's a reason for it um, and and you know they all they usually have practical meanings and symbolic meanings um, so this it's this whole wraparound school of obedience that trains the, the the priest or the clergy in general to to subordinate himself to the mysteries of Christ to become less like when when John the Baptist says you know he must increase I must yes. decrease right the traditional liturgy just does that yeah. and it does it to the faithful too we we don't get what we want or what we like, we get what we need right. and what God demands, right? That's that's what we end up with. And then, if, of course, by, by the experience of it, eventually we see that it's fitting too, and then we love it, and then we experience joy, right, uh, in, in that. So, whereas with the new liturgy, right, that, that, that the Vatican is saying, you know, for the sake of unity, we all need to get on board with the new liturgy. There is no unity in the new liturgy. You know, you can do everything from the Brompton Oratory, where they make it look as much like the Trinity Mass as possible, down to the local jamboree with the, you know, the folk band and with, you know, with Father, uh, uh, you know, uh, talkative, who's just making up all kinds of stuff. And, and I mean, there's no unity in the Novus Ordo because the rubrics are so, uh, you know, in, inadequate, right, and and so insufficient, and the whole ritual is just a bunch of modules that, that you put together. So I mean, it, you know, it's just ironic. Unity comes from a traditional, fixed, established, perfected liturgical rite. That's where unity comes from, right? That's where the Greek Catholics, that's where the the Byzantine Catholics, the Russians, that's where they get their unity mm. from. They don't get it from the Pope. They don't. Ha I mean. Yeah, you know what I mean? like the, their unity comes primarily from how they sure. worship. They worship in a traditional way, and it's fixed, and that's what gives them the faith. You know the well. I I wanted to touch on something you were just talking about, which I thought was so perfect and correct, which is that the liturgy. Is, if you if you if you look at the the narrative flow of the traditional Latin liturgy, um, it it, is, it does establish a hierarchical framework for how we live our lives because. Before any of us as lay people get to ask for forgiveness, receive absolution, receive any of the, the, the blessings of the priest in persona Christi or anything like that, before we get to do any of that, the priest himself must stand up there all by himself and bend low at the waist and beg for forgiveness for his sins first, yes. by, alone and by himself. He's saying that prayer to you know, when, when he says, and, and to you, my brothers and sisters, he's not just saying that to the altar boys. It's 
it's, it's to us also, right? And so uh, God forgives him, and then we pray the confitior. So there's a, there is a, and it, I think it's very interesting that that establishment of that hierarchical structure is dependent upon the priest first begging forgiveness for his sin. So it's not just, I'm in charge here. This is my church and you'll do what I say. It's not, doesn't work like that. And I think that's one of the reasons the modernists don't like it. They're not sorry for anything to yeah. anybody for anything. Um, and I think, I think what you're also touching on here is not just the higher the hierarchical nature of the traditional right and rights, all rights are that way, traditional rights, uh, but also the psychology of the traditional mm -hmm. right is one in which, especially because of the ad orientem posture, the priest, the priest submerges himself, he loses himself in the liturgical ritual and he becomes in a sense invisible. What you see is, yes, you see the back of the priest, but you see usually a beautiful chasuble with a cross on it. And it makes you realize he is standing in the person of Christ, as you said, in persona Christi, uh, with the power of Christ to confect the Eucharist and to effect, you know, many other sacraments. Um, and so the the priest, in a sense, he disappears into yes. Christ. And 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 so it, the psychology of the traditional right is against hubris. It's against egoism. It's against narcissism. And I'm convinced that. What you see in a lot of the liberals and progressives and modernists is that they are egomaniacs. Oh, they, 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 are, they want <laughs> your attention. They want your obedience. They want your servility. You they can't want, make me turn this beautiful power. face away from the congregation. They got to look at, this is the moneymaker right here, you know. <laughs> and, and, and in some twisted sense, they will use the fact that the priest is ad orientum to show, well, the priest is... He thinks he's better than us because he's turning his back. And it's like, if you believe that, you are you are sadly mistaken. Because because <laughs> I don't see how him turning his back to us is him boasting himself because he's humbling himself by yes. doing that. Exactly. Well, well and, and it, it doesn't it doesn't require a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist to figure out that what's going on is that we're all facing right. God together. I mean that's right. this is, you know, this, this, that's much more clear than oh the priest is busy with something he doesn't want us to see. Well, I mean everybody knows what he's doing. <laughs> right. Like it takes about this much catechism to know what he's doing, right? Um, you know, well we can't see what he's doing. Well, you can't see what he's doing anyway. It's an invisible miracle, right? right? So, because so even in the Byzantine church where the priest is facing us, in those parts where the priest is facing the people, the doors to the iconostasis are usually closed. Yes. So that element of mystery yes. is still maintained. Um, yes. I believe it was St. Matthew's Gospel where the they're preparing for the Passover and they the and the apostles are getting ready to do this and it's always interesting to me they don't say, "Ooh, ooh you know what I like is a guitar." Can we have a guitar with a guy with a guitar? Oh, no, no, no. I'm not much of a guitar guy, but I'm more like, you know, uh, a bunch of different wines and cheeses. I'd like a really nice setup. They don't do that. They say, Lord, where do you desire to prepare the Passover? Because it's what he wants. This isn't about yes. this is this. This is doing us a favor. We're not doing him a favor. <laughs> and so right. I feel exactly. like the traditional Latin mass in a, in a sense really is that. Um, this isn't about me, nor is it about Father uh, so-and-so. It's about the tabernacle and who resides within. Um, yes, and the reason I bring up the psychology is that, is that it seems to me that traditional Catholicism in general, you know, we're, we're all fallen creatures. We all have sinfulness to, to struggle with. 
and particular sins and, and, and habits of sin. And, and so the, the, the practice of the faith is, is only going to make us saints after a long time and after a lot of effort. And, and for many of us, that may be finished only in purgatory. But the practices of traditional Catholicism are designed to kind of grind down the ego and to, to, to make us really to polish us into the image of God. To, so it's not, it's not antithetical to our personhood. It's actually in favor of making us the people that God want, want, wants us to be. And it seems to me that in, in, in modern Catholicism, a lot of respect, in, in a lot of ways in modern Catholicism, it's, it's me, myself, and I. Like, in other words, we, we've, we've moved away from asceticism, we've moved away from self-denial, we've moved away from, from prayer and mysticism, all of the ways in which the, the tradition of the church has tried to submerge the ego into something greater than itself. And we've kind of taken center stage again, and that's especially true of, of the clergy. Um, and I, I mention all of this because it seems to me that there, that um, this weaponized obedience is very often connected with this um, narcissism and this uh, immaturity, this immaturity where church leaders take it personally that you're not, that you don't agree with their preferences, yeah. their opinions, their likes and dislikes, whatever it might be. Well, I'm sorry, with all due respect, I don't owe you agreement with your opinions, your likes and dislikes, your taste in this, that, and the other thing, whatever. That, I mean, you know, there, this is getting back to your question about obedience, right? Obedience has very sharply de defined parameters, right? When a priest, for example, makes promises to a bishop, you know, I'm going to obey the bishop. He doesn't mean in absolutely everything and in every way. He means with regard to those things over which the bishop has right. authority. I mean, St. Thomas really spells this out very clearly in the Summa, you know? So, like, the, you know, the bishop can't tell the priest how to decorate his house or what music to listen to or even how to say mass like if a priest says i mean within limits obviously the bishop can say you have to follow the rules but if the priest says i'm going to follow the rubrics and celebrate mass ad orientem i'm talking now about the novus ordo mass mm -hmm. right and then the, the bishop can't come in and say well i'm sorry i don't like ad orientem you have to do it versus populum at the way that cardinal supich did in chicago yeah. well sorry your eminence but you don't have the authority to do that because <laughs> The, the rubrics are right there. I can show you. It says, you, you know, the, you could do this. Right. Uh, so who are you to tell me under obedience that I can't do what I'm perfectly free and allowed to do? No, I was just going to make a quick comment and go into your, your point about, you know, obedience to a bishop. It's not just that you're making this up in your book or that we're just making it up because we don't agree with what's going on right now. The church has a history yeah. Of, of saints and Christians not just blindly following their bishop. I mean, look at the Arian controversy, right? There was, there was much disagreement and, and whatnot during that time and throughout history. So this isn't a new concept that, that, that we're talking about. I mean, there's a history of it in the Catholic Church. Yeah, and just to build on that point, I mean, one of the things that I do in my, in my little book, and by the way, the reason it's a short book is that it began as a lecture. I gave it at the Catholic Identity Conference last October, um, and then I, I built it up into a, into a tract. Basically, I like to call it a tract because it makes me think of Newman. You know, Cardinal <laughs> Newman wrote these famous sure. tracts for Absolutely. the times, and so I, I kind of a little homage to him. But uh, and I quote: I mean, I love Newman. Newman, I think, is a great oh, ally for us at this time. Um, he wrote that he wrote a famous book on the Arian controversy, uh, where and that's where he says famously that the laity held the faith better than mm. the bishops did mm. uh, during the fourth mm. century controversy, during that huge, terrible time. 
Um, but anyway, in this tract, uh, you know, I'm following the doctrine of St. Thomas Aquinas, um, whose treatment of obedience is sober and reasonable. And uh, I guess I would call it in a sense, um, it's, it's a very, mo it's a modest and rational treatment of obedience. Is It isn't this kind of hypertrophic, exaggerated notion of obedience that comes later on through the Jesuit okay. tradition. Okay. So, I mean, what happened with the Jesuits, you know, St. Ignatius of Loyola obviously had huge virtues, you know, and, and we admire him and we pray to him and uh, we certainly need to pray to him for his, for the Jesuits <laughs> today. But anyway, but, um, but St. Ignatius was somebody who really insisted on, you know, prompt, immediate, total obedience from his followers. Uh, apparently he had difficulties with some of his early followers. Um, they were making trouble. And he said, this is not compatible with belonging to the Society of Jesus. You know, we have to become known uh, throughout the world for our, you know, radical obedience in imitation of Christ. Okay, well, for religious you know, there's definitely a sphere when you look in the monastic tradition and you look in the Jesuits and in the other religious communities, there is a sphere for this special vow of religious obedience. And that's going to be more radical. It still doesn't cancel out reason. It still doesn't cancel out faith and tradition and everything else. But it's going to be very radical in comparison to the kind of obedience that even a diocesan priest or a layperson is is obliged to give. Um, but what happened in the Igne in the Jesuit tradition is that some later Jesuits came on and they kind of, they almost tried to outdo one another in, in finding the most, the most, you know, I don't want to put this, the most extreme possible expression of obedience. Like, how can we be so obedient that, you know, we couldn't possibly be more mm -hmm. obedient. And they would say things like, you know, you should be so obedient that you're like a cadaver. Like you have no motion of your own, no will of your own. You, you're just, you're like a tool. You're an mm -hmm. instrument that can be moved by another. And they said things like, don't worry if what you're being told to do bothers you. It's on the head of your superior. Like if you do, if you do something wrong because you were told to do it, it's on mm -hmm. his head. It's not on your head. You know, and, I mean, they said a, a number of things like this or like you should be blindly obedient. You should never think about what you're told to do you should never question it you should even strive to make yourself agree with everything that your superior thinks even if it bothers you you know like you have a different thought about things or your conscience is like niggling you or whatever no no no. you have to agree so when, once you get into that vision of obedience i think some it begins to be twisted right it, be, it becomes this sort of inhuman irrational um and potentially very destructive form of obedience, right? That's the kind of obedience that in a secular sphere ends up with the Gestapo and the SS, right. you know, who are saying, okay, we were ordered to kill these Jews. You know, it's, it wasn't our order. It just came from above. We were just doing what we were told. Sorry, the Nuremberg trial said, sorry, but you ought to have known better, right? right? <laughs> I don't care what your superiors right. told you. Reaffirmation of the natural law, for sure. And I think, you know, and I, I used to have a spiritual director who once told me when you read guys like St. Ignatius in some context and uh, John of the Cross and some of the other, there's a, there's nuance that goes into that. There is a lot of, of discernment that goes into that. And in fact, I remember one time I had a copy of, uh, of uh, dark night of the soul and, um, and, and this priest, he took it away from me. He said, you know, no. he said, pump your brakes there kid in, in a, in a while, but not just yet. Um, you talk in something in here about the conditions for obedience, which is something I want to get into with you here, that the first condition here is trust. 
this is this is so beautiful because when I think there's a miscalculation. We talk about obedience. It sounds like we are binding the subordinate. When in reality, true obedience binds both parties. It binds the superior and it binds the subordinate. It is very covenantal sort of language in a sense. Oh, yeah. um, and so and so trust the, the, the superior has a, 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 a very severe duty not to abuse trust uh, and, and, and to order in order to fulfill his role as a superior. Are the modernists in the hierarchy so delusional that they really get the sense that the laity trusts them after the last 50 years? Do they, is that the world? In other words, I mean, no, this is a serious question I ask because sometimes I, I listen to, to Francis and, 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 and Roach and, and, and Supich, and they talk as if the last 50 years just didn't happen and that everybody just yes. forgot about yes. sex abuse, yes. liturgical abuse, uh, financial abuse, all of these things. And now we would like you to get rid of your beautiful Latin liturgy for no other reason other than we know you like it. Yes, uh, and because we told you so. Yeah, yeah. I, not a know, good, not a good reason do, because do we told you so. Are the do the modernists own? I mean, I, they're modernists. I assume they own TVs and radios and and consume public yeah. media. I mean, no, it's a good. It's it, no, it's a really good point you're making, um, and and it's been it's been made by a number of people just looking at the situation that we're in right now. Um, you know, the mainstream church in, in the Western world, so we're not going to talk about Africa right now. Africa is a different situation. Mm -hmm. It's both booming and also has its own particular sure. problems, right? So it's not just the paradise. But, uh, but in the Western world, basically North America and Europe, especially also South America to some extent, um, the church is crashing, Right, the church is crashing. It's demogra There's a demographic winter that is affecting us, just like there is in terms of population growth. Um, people are, you know, the older generations are dying off. The medium, the middle generations are not having large families, and the younger generations are leaving the church, and they're not even coming to mass right. at all. And COVID just accelerated mm -hmm. that. You know, by it just it was like putting on the super accelerator to the to the demographic winter. Um, and so. It seems to, I, the only thing I can think of, there are only two possible hypotheses for how the bishops and cardinals who are on the liberal side, the progressive side, how it is that they're, they're capable of looking at this situation and not realizing we need to turn around. <laughs> we, we need a 180 degree turnaround. And you know what we need? We need to return to tradition because that's where things seem to be really energetic. And that's where people are very excited and that's where life is happening. Or at least not stomp um, it out. I mean... And, yes. it, 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 and so I think there are only two possible <clears throat> hypotheses. One is that they are so arrogant and so convinced that they're right that they can't actually see reality for mm -hmm. what it is. You know, and that's kind of a characteristic of megalomania or egomaniacs sure. is that they, 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 they see the world rather as they want to see it than as it actually yeah. is. Okay. But the other explanation, which could very well be true, it certainly has been true for some individuals is that they're actually seeking to destroy the church, right? Um, and, you know, and short of somebody writing true confessions and telling us what they're thinking, you know, like, I don't know how you would really be able to, to distinguish, but I mean, the, the way that somebody like Cardinal Supic is acting is calculated to make, to alienate all of it, nearly all of his clergy, to alienate the faithful, 
especially in their growth sectors, and to just poison his his entire the, his entire local church. So it, it, if he was doing that, he might be doing that deliberately. See, I would argue he is doing it deliberately. Bring down the church. I mean, I. Well, I, my argument is he is doing it deliberately. And if you go back and like read some of the read what modernists write when they use that word church, mm -hmm. when they do not believe that the Catholic Church is the one true church, they believe the one true church is something that is going to come out of right the 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 synthesis of all these different religions and the catholic church yeah. is part of that but none of that will happen until all the different religious structures sort of die off and and collapse and so in their minds yeah. and this is this is how i interpret modernists yes. they are bringing yes. about the catholic church because this this institutional thing is like a relic of you know the way the past they, thought they kept yeah. men down yeah yeah, no, that's that's true, and and I mean, and then then you just you kind of have to raise the question, the cynical question, how much do certain people actually believe anymore? Yeah. You know, I mean, are are all of the bishops and cardinals actually theists? Do they do they I accept wonder. the existence of God? Do do they confess the divinity of Christ? Do they believe in transubstantiation? You know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you could you could raise these questions on a number of levels. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, my my, sure. my biggest challenge has been so far, and this is one of the things that. Was I was like on my way to Constantinople is if I take Traditionis Custodis at face value, okay, and um, and I think about, you know, you, you mentioned yourself that the practices of the church take a long time. You don't, okay, I think from now on I'm going to be a saint. It's not how it works. It's a lifetime of piety and cultivation of the spiritual life to uh, you know, frequent and worthy reception of the holy sacraments in order to just pile on the sanctifying grace that grinds down the concupiscence that will make you into a saint. But I don't know how to do that in a Catholic church that changes so fast now, I literally can't keep up with it. I mean, our claim to fame is that we have continuity with the apostles themselves, yes. but now yes. I don't even have continuity with the last Pope, who's still alive, by the yes. way. <laughs> yes, yes. No, no, exactly. By the way, I, have, I just want to mention mm -hmm. this. Um, I have a book coming out okay. soon my next book uh it's called the road from hyper papalism to catholicism oh, you're coming on the show to talk about that you might as well just and uh and and what i what i try what i want to do in this in that book what i am doing in that book is presenting a sane defensible compelling vision of the papacy okay. that adheres to everything the church has ever taught about the papacy but which doesn't turn the pope into this kind of like um destructo right. machine you know towards tradition right so in other words it, it i try to say why is it that the that popes are beholden to tradition why is it that they're not allowed to dismantle it or to denigrate it uh etc so i'm trying to come up with a healthy um understanding of the papacy that's what i'm doing i i that's why um, that's why i love you you're 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 you're, you're 10 steps ahead of where my my heart's already going and you've got the <laughs> i mean all the all the issues that we're dealing with you know, they're all kind of, they're very logically sure. connected, right? The question of obedience is connected to, you know, what is the Catholic Church? How is it, how is it structured by Christ? Did our Lord structure the church in such a way that it could self-destruct at a certain moment? No, right. he didn't. It, it can't possibly be the case that the Pope's authority is such that he can sort of nuke the church, right? right? <laughs> like, like, you know, euthanize right. the church, right? That's not going to happen. Right. Uh, and, and if it is that way, yet, then forget reforming it. We ought to just walk away from it entirely to begin with. That, that's the thing I, I mean, is, is it, 
and one of the things I think I was thinking about when going over to the Orthodox, not that I wanted to become Orthodox, but I was just thinking, man, it must be nice to live in a church that exists as something other than just something to reform constantly. Man, that's got to yeah. be nice. Yeah, it's true. You know, the, the, I mean, not that this would be this would be a big digression for the show, but as far as the East is concerned, you know, like you, I, I, I share a great deal of admiration for the East. Um, you know, and I would and probably some traditionalists would be scandalized at the extent to which I read Eastern authors. And I've got icons. I've got an icon of St. Seraphim of oh, Seraphim. You know, I, I, I believe very strongly in the sanctity of the Eastern Orthodox, you know, those who whom they revere as saints. Uh, and, and there are mysteries I, I, that I can't explain, um, you know, about the Orthodox. That I, I don't view them as sort of um, like dead right. members of the church. That, that's I can't I can't bring myself. I, I'm to with do you. That. It, would, it would be too I'm, much I'm with violence. You on that. Um, but you know, but they have some problems of their own. Uh, two of which are a kind of immobilism. That is to say, because they don't have a centralized authority. Mm -hmm. You know, at its best, centralized authority can be a wonderful thing. A new bioethical challenge comes up and the Vatican is on right. it with, you know, a complete and clear explanation of the ethics of this particular, you know, bioethical issue. And then all the Eastern Orthodox secretly read that because they're like, oh, good. We've got some guidance on it. <laughs> like to do like in vitro fertilization because they have no magic. They, they, they don't really have a magisterium. I mean, what would that be in the East? It's great to talk about the, the consensus of the fathers. It's great to, to read all the old sources, but they're not talking about in vitro fertilization, you know? So, and then, and then if you say, well, all we have to do is apply their principles, well, good luck. But, you know, the Catholic, the, the Western church has a m much stronger tradition of moral sure. theology, in my opinion. Um, now, the other thing too is, is that there's a certain amount of, how do you want to say like eclecticism and and uh, and even anarchy in the mm -hmm. East, right? In the sense that it can be hard to get an answer to certain questions. You know, you get one answer from one and another answer from another. And well, we used to hold this, but some, but the Russians hold this, and the Greeks hold this, and the Bulgarians hold that, and whatever. So it, it's it's a mess. They have oh, a mess sure. too. They just have a different yeah, kind. Yeah. Of mess, you know? Definitely. So. Like and a, yeah, and eventually I felt like it would be foolish of me to 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 wander off to the Eastern Orthodox Church because I don't like all this schism. It's like they have a new schism in the East yeah. about once a week. Um, you know, it. it yeah. Any. It, it, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about about the book here and going into the common yes. good standard that you talk about in here, and mm -hmm. that we can we can reach. We don't all need PhDs in in canon law and theology in order to reach conclusions about when it's okay to to disobey a particular uh, uh, high ranking cleric or or uh, bishop or priest or whoever because of something uh, called the the census fidelium. And I wondered if you could just talk about that a little bit in a in a way that because sure. uh, I thought the way you spelled it out here was so perfect. And so, by the way. If you would have written this book, I probably wouldn't have read it, okay? Because uh, I would have been like, "That's too, that's too deep for me to uh, get into an argument, an argumentation of myself back to reality." Yes. This was so great, the census fidelium, um, and there's mm -hmm. a note from a Vatican dicastery and where they talk a little bit about the the census fide fidelium as a uh, some when someone reacts as a music lover who hears a false note, okay. So, you know, and, and kind of like seeing a picture that's hung s uh, ever so slightly off kilter. You, you can't yeah. put your finger on it, but that just ain't right. Talk a little bit about right, the census right. fidelium, because I think that's an important topic here. 
So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the census fidelium is based on the premise that all baptized Christians are given the theological virtue of faith and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, by which if they, if they cultivate those, those graces and gifts, that is, if they, if they cooperate with, with God, so they have to learn their faith. It's not, we're not talking about something that happens by some kind of like mystical revelation, but if we cooperate with God and we build up our faith, you know, let's say we, we, we learn the catechism, the Baltimore catechism or the catechism of the Council of Trent or one of any one of hundreds of traditional catechisms that all taught the same thing, um, that, that we, we have all the faithful, all the baptized have the ability to, to, to hear, to sense that something is wrong when uh, falsehood is preached. So let's say you're a Catholic in Germany in the early 16th century, and you, and you go to church one day in Wittenberg, and you hear this Augustinian canon named Martin Luther, okay, Father Luther, and he's just going on and on about how the Pope is the whore of Babylon, and, and you know, you're not, you, you don't have to do any good works, you just have to believe in, in God's mercy, and that's enough for you to be saved. And he's saying all these things, and you're saying to yourself, I'm not a theologian, he is, but I'm not. But what he's saying sure doesn't sound like, like the teaching of the church. It doesn't sound like the Catholic right. faith, right? That's what we're talking about with the census fidelium. That's what happened in the fourth century when there were bishops saying, well, you know, Jesus was a godlike man. And he was, you know, he was so holy that he was as if he was divine. And like, they're saying things like that. You're like, uh-uh, sorry. Like, he's right. God. So what's, what am I missing here, you know? <laughs> and... Uh, and and so similarly today, you know, I know plenty of Catholics. We all we all know this. Who, when Amoris Laetitia came out, or these synods on the family, 2014, 2015, uh, you know, oh how the time has gone by. Uh, but you know, these synods were were going on, and lots of ordinary Catholics were scandalized because they said, "How dare these bishops call into question the indissolubility of marriage? How dare they say that people who who are divorced and remarried?" you know, can go and receive communion or, or confession and communion and just keep living the same right. way. That that right. makes no sense whatsoever, right? right? Uh, and that, that's what we mean by the census fidelium. You may not be able to explain it. You may not be able to quote Aquinas and Alphonsus Liguri and all these, you know, different things, but you know something's wrong and, and you know well, that you can't. Well, and, and I think that census fidelium also, uh, or the sense of it, of, of at least being properly catechized you know will help you because it, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, peter when he writes about always be ready to give an answer for the faith that is in you and yep. and you may you know the laity especially is going to have to spend some time knowing the faith because again when you when you come across this this argument from authority which is a fallacy you know you see it in the secular world i have a phd in this or i have you know um a master's in this People act like, well, all of a sudden that that diminishes any argument or any data that you've read. And you see that in the church today, right? You talk to lay, lay, lay faithful and you may disagree and they'll say, well, bishop so-and-so said this or father so-and-so said that. And what, they, and what they're saying may be true, but you have to be able to properly discern, is it in accord with the teachings and tradition of the church and not just say, oh, because he's a bishop, uh, he's right. Yeah, and exactly. And so the premise or the, the foundation of 
of this this view that 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 the faithful do know the truth and that they can hear the 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 uh, the off note, the dissonant note when when you know when they hear it. Um, that depends on holding the view, which I would just say is equivalent to the Catholic faith, that the deposit of faith never changes. That what we hold as Catholics always remains the same from the beginning when Christ gave it to the apostles down to the end of time. It will never essentially change. And there will never be a contradiction. Any, any magisterial teaching at any point in church history, however much more it explains something, will never contradict what has been taught uh, before. Um, and, and that's something, that's what we call the development of doctrine, rightly understood, yeah. is that there is an unfolding in our understanding, but there's not a, a set of contradictions. The, the modernists uh, explicitly apply Darwinian evolution uh, mm -hmm. and, and the, you know, the notion, well, or, or you could also invoke Hegel, the German philosopher oh, Hegel. They're big on Hegel, too. But they, yeah. they, they explicitly think that doctrine evolves. It evolves in a Darwinian way, you get new right. things that were never there right. before, and old things die off, right? So, you know, you get suddenly like, okay, well, for 2,000 years, actually more, because you because of the Old Testament, you know, we, we held that the death penalty was legitimate. In fact, that, that not only was it legitimate, but sometimes it was morally re uh, required or obligatory to use it uh, in order to protect society. And now suddenly we, we get this rabbit, we pull this rabbit out of a hat, that says, well, no, the death penalty is is actually contrary to the gospel and to human dignity, as Pope mm -hmm. Francis said, and therefore inadmissible. Well, I mean, at, at that point, anything can become anything. You can keep pulling rabbits out of the hat, you know, <laughs> until uh, until the cows come home. To mix a couple of metaphors, well, you know? um, and then you and then you end up in the situation of of the German Senate. I mean, the, the first yes. John in, in John's first letter. In chapter four of John's first letter, there's a great little paragraph. It's not you don't have to be a Ph.D. to 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 read this. And it just says this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And they said they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. Mm -hmm. There it is. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, yes. Now let me just pick up on one yeah. point here that it's important. So we've been I've been using a lot of examples from dogma, like divinity of Christ uh, was was one of the things we've been talking about. But we have to recognize that the liturgy, the lex orandi of the church, the law of prayer, uh, according to which Catholics worship God, is something that is inherently bound up with the church's dogmatic teaching. And this is what Pius V recognized when he promulgated the Tridentine Mass in 1570, which was just simply a, a, a lightly corrected form of the Roman Mass that had been used for many centuries prior to that. So it wasn't a Mass that he created or that he invented or something. He was just recognizing as authoritative the liturgy of the Church of Rome. When, when he did that, he was doing it because the liturgy of the Church of Rome transmits pure Catholic doctrine and because it glorifies God. It glorifies God, it sanctifies man, and it transmits Catholic doctrine in its purity. And so it's, and this is the view that, that, that Catholics have always had about the liturgy, is that it is inherently doctrinal. Mm. It's not just a disciplinary matter. Um, and that's why uh, 
that's why it, it pertains essentially to the common good of the church that's entrusted to the leaders of the church. They have to pass this down. It's not an optional. It's not optional for them, right? Just like they can't say, well, I like this verse of, of God, the gospel, but I don't like that verse. Or I like this line of the Apostles' Creed, but I don't like that line of the Apostles' Creed. No, they have to hand it all down. Right. And that's the same way with the liturgy as well. Um, so really the census fidelium is also offended when at liturgical abuse and at liturgical, at useless and harmful liturgical mm. change. Uh, that's also a dissonant note. That's also cacophony for us, right? Um, if I, I mean, I've read a lot about what was going on in the 60s and 70s, and there were plenty of Catholics who were scandalized when one day the priest turned around at Mass and started talking to them. When he started celebrating Mass versus Populum. What are you doing? I mean, this is, you know, nowadays we kind of, I mean, we might roll our eyes, but we sort of take it for granted that versus Populum exists. It's, it's, it's out there, right? But can you imagine what it would have been like you know, especially if you had only ever gone to Mass ad orientem, and suddenly Father Foghorn is turning around and just starting to say announcements at you, and, and, and then he's, you know, handling the bread and wine in front of you. I mean, it, it's, you know, and, and the, this is... The, so, the point is that the census fidelium is also... It also responds to the liturgy, to what's going on with the liturgy. And when you attend the traditional right long enough, whether an Eastern traditional right or a Western traditional right, and then you suddenly find yourself face to face with the Novus Ordo again, it's it's a very it's disturbing jarring. experience. It, it, it's, oh, it's terrible. It's like your guts are being torn torn up. And that's because you, you've been formed by the prayer of the church, mm -hmm. the age old and ageless prayer of the church. And now you're seeing some kind of man-made banal fabrication mm -hmm that doesn't transmit the same faith in the same way. Uh, and so you should be disturbed by that. Oh, indeed. Right? Yeah, um, and, and I've talked about it on this show before. I won't, I won't get into it in detail again, but, you know, I've mentioned one of the, because I'm a convert, j just so you know, since 2018, but one of the main reasons I started going to the traditional Latin Mass was because of the catechesis the liturgy teaches my children. So, you know, here recently, going along the lines of what you're saying, we went to a, a wedding mass. It was a Novus Ordo mass. And my seven-year-old son was just taken aback that people were receiving Holy Eucharist in the hand. And it's not, and it's yes. not something that we necessarily have taught him. I and mean, we've talked about it briefly every now and then, you know, through time. But him seeing... Hey, this is something different. This is not just, I'm not just going up here to get common bread. There is something transcendent happening behind that altar rail. And it's the, it's the same thing in your book. When you, we talked about at the beginning of the show, the obedience, it made me realize after reading your book, my children are also learning, not, not through the liturgy, they're learning what obedience looks like. Because you, you talk about in the book, St. Thomas Aquinas says that the perfect offering of yourself is or the yeah the perfect offering of yourself is when you give up your will you know you submit your will and uh mm -hmm. th i i realize that they're being taught that through the liturgy every time we go to mass yes yeah it, it's true you know and it's um you know and, and the view one of the things i bring up you were talking earlier about what are the conditions for obedience you know um, I mean, the obedience, when we're, when we're told to do something or not to do something under obedience, it has to be for the sake of something which is true, not for something which is false, 
and can be known to be false. Um, it has to be done out of charity, that is, out of love for us and not out of hatred for us or to our destruction or our harm. Um, it needs to be compatible with the teaching and the practice of the church. Um, I mean, there are all of these dimensions that, in a sense, condition, not just condition our obedience, but condition the commands and prohibitions of the mm. superiors, right? Those commands and prohibitions have to, have to flow through a filter, so to speak, and the filter can catch them, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, it, but if they're giving a legitimate command or prohibition, it gets through those filters, mm -hmm. right? And then we have to receive it and take it seriously. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, th I think I think it you know it's 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 great to see with with some of the saints I quote and Leo the Thirteenth and so on that this is in fact the teaching of the church. You know, this is not some kind of like Protestant mentality like oh you're like a Protestant you know you pick and choose what you want to obey. No, that's not it at all. Okay, <laughs> the, the the problem with the Protestants is that they have false principles. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's the problem. If you're a Catholic and you have true principles, you got to apply those principles. Right. Right. And, and that's and that's what we're doing. That's what we're talking I mean, about. I, I think, I, go ahead, Jason. Uh, I, was, I was just going to say real quick, I think the argument could be better made the other way. Just, you know, what you're you know, what we were talking about earlier and how much leeway they have in the liturgy of the Novus Ordo. Yes. I mean, going yes. going right yes. to Traditionis Custodis itself, the first thing and I will be honest, for most of Francis Pontificate, I have stayed away from the controversial stuff just because I, I don't like thinking that the that the pope is an error i mean who likes to think that i, I don't want to and, and so i i enough of the stuff like in amoris Laetitia and things like that were okay well you know i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna trust in the in the guidance of the bishops and the, there's a dubia out that's among the cardinals i'm gonna i'm gonna leave it alone and i'm gonna just do my thing um but there's there's a passage in the gospels where christ commands us to go out and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now I have this papal document that is saying, if the church is growing only in this particular area and dying everywhere else, it's just better if the church just doesn't grow at all. And I went, mm -hmm. yeah, I can't go along with that. I'm sorry. I, I answered, a, I answered yeah. a higher people than Jorge Bergoglio. And this is not, I am not a Bergogliist. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Christian, yes, and yes. he is the master. Jesus is the master. Never, never. And he's, and and our Lord is the one who is who is bestowing these great fruits on traditional Catholic right. communities. And and I also I also so, I also read the part where he said this is all eventually to just get rid of the traditional Latin Mass. And and then I went, okay, a modernist made a prediction. We're safe because. Uh, the, the modernists in 150 years, the modernists have never predicted a single thing that ever ended up being true. I really don't know why we all continue to listen to these people like they're the sages of the earth, because if they could just make one prediction that ended up being correct. But they that's this is how many all of their predictions have come to nothing. So when they said the traditional Latin mass was just going to go away, I went, OK, we're safe. We're all right. Everything's going to be OK. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I mean, I mean, the, the, the point to be made there is just that we've 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 seen this before. We've been through it before. Not not the three of us personally. We're too young for that. But I mean, as a church, a campaign was was launched in the late 60s and throughout the 70s to to exterminate the traditional Latin mass. And it failed. And it failed because there were enough Catholics who said, right. no, not doing right. it. <laughs> I mean, it's a great time so, to be. I. I really do believe 
that um, that July sixteenth, twenty twenty one was a was a, will go down in history as a watershed moment for the church. And I I yes. do think that I get the sense that before this, the most of the ecclesiastical hierarchy was yeah, Francis is a little eclectic, but you you just don't know him well enough, kind of a thing. And now there are memos circulating around the college about what we're going to do in the next conclave. And I'm like, well, that ain't bode. Yeah. The guy's not cold yet. You can't, <laughs> How are you? You know, and I'm thinking, well, that doesn't bode very well. And I, 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 I think there's a sense now that, and even amongst the cardinals who typically don't even weigh in on this kind of thing, I mean, Francis reforms the curia. He'll reform the curia about 14 times by the end of this sentence. That's got to be frustrating to keep up with. And, and, and so I get the yes. sense that... Uh, maybe when we go to conclave and we vote, um, maybe we ought to just not do what everybody else is doing and actually think about this and discern and, and let that Holy Spirit person. I mean, I know he I know he doesn't have a degree from the Gregorian, but let's go ahead and listen to him anyway. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. The, the next conclave is going to be a battle. Oh, I, I would love to be a fly on that wall. <laughs> Would love to be a fly on that wall. We're coming up on an hour, and I know uh, you have other things to do today, so I want to thank you so much for coming and spending some time with us today. The book is True Obedience in the Church, A Guide to Discernment in Challenging Times. There will be a link in the description. The author, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. We have we, we have two we have two Polish guys in our well probably three or four Polish guys in our uh, Knights of Columbus group and uh, we always butcher their names so you're not in bad company. Um, now now let me do you mind uh, Mark if I mention please. real quick there's actually a website for this tract it's called trueobedience.com and there will be a link in the description. Yeah so you can go to trueobedience.com and this is very important if there are any priests or seminarians or deacons listening. Through that website, you can request a free copy, thanks to some some benefactors. Oh, awesome. I know they're they're sponsoring free copies for seminarians, priests. That and is deacons. so beautiful. That is so beautiful. Um, this has been such a fantastic conversation. I hope when your new book comes out, you'll uh, you'll come on the show and talk with us uh, uh, about it. Um, we're big fans of yours and. We're officially, Jason, shall we make him friend of the show? He's a friend of the show, Yeah, right? he's a friend of the friend show. Friend of the show, FOS. <laughs> All right. Okay, fantastic. Um, and so uh, that wraps it up. Uh, and so we'll, we will we just usually close with a, a, a quick thanksgiving to our Lord. And we pachis et fili et spiritus sancti. Agimus tibi gratias omnipotens deus per universus beneficis tuis qui vigis et regnas in secula seculorum. Amen. In nomine patris et fili et spiritus sancti. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, thank you so much for joining us. To our Tradmen listeners, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and remember, life is hard, but it's harder when you don't pray the rosary. God bless you. God bless everyone. Mm-hmm.